Hey, I'm Matthew Ma. Welcome to the Truth About Real Estate podcast. Today, I'm excited to bring you Johnny Wolf, the CEO and founder of Homeroom Co-Living, one of the fastest growing co-living companies in the country. We'll talk about millennials and Gen Z real estate trends, co-living startups, and real estate investing. Welcome to the show, Johnny. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. Really excited to be here. Cool. Tell us, uh, how did you first get into real estate? Yeah, I um, started investing in 2008 out of state through a family friend. They were they had a basically a turnkey company in Midland, Texas, which is Oil Town, USA, where Friday Night Lights takes place. Uh, bought a brand new build for like ninety five thousand dollars. Nice. Um, so yeah, so that was my first property, um, and uh, yeah, bought another property with a, a self managed IRA a couple years later. And, but I was learning real estate, kind of watching my, you know, my micro portfolio for a while. And then in 2015, I decided to move to Austin and invest in real estate quite a bit more seriously and bought a number of homes in the Austin's in Austin city limits and turned them all to roommate houses to increase rent. And that's kind of what inspired me to, you know, do uh do home room. Uh, the returns were really, really good for me. And so I thought there might be a co-living opportunity for a lot of other people as well. You know, most people don't start, when they buy housing, they start thinking about long-term rentals and they don't really think about like roommate uh, creating a you know house that can do co-living spaces. Like how did you come to think about doing that? Um, I mean, I lived in San Francisco. I lived in, well, more specific, I lived in San Francisco for a bit, but also Sunnyvale, San Jose. Mm-hmm. And so most you know, buying a house requires like a household income of like half a million dollars. Um, and so that wasn't something that was realistic for me early in my career. So I lived with roommates. So that was just what I, and I really honestly really enjoyed it. So the value of having a community of people that you live with, I think it's underappreciated. And so that's how I thought to do real estate investing as well. When I bought properties in Austin, it's like, let's, let's set it up exactly the same. I know there's a lot of people out there. We used to do roommate matching nights where we'd have like 20 guys come over and Sunnyvale, we'd play like NBA jam and we'd pick one of them to be our roommate. So the demand is super high for that type of living. And I, I've seen it in now Austin, Kansas city and Dallas. So and just kind of all the pieces sort of came together for me, just from different ways of living and investing. And I think one thing I learned about you when uh, when we were just getting to know each other is that you actually had a terrible roommate experience and that kind of helped inspire homeroom co-living. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a, you know, it wasn't, it was definitely one specifically um, and just um, it involved me having a room, paying for room, not getting the room when I showed up, it, like was the, you know, not the right house. Um, so I got spam, spam vacation basically. But I'd also had like just years and years of mediocre roommate experiences on Craigslist. Um, that is without a doubt, like the most media, media, mediocre way to find a roommate. I mean, you can find great roommates through Craigslist, through Facebook marketplace, but the process itself is arduous. It's not fun. The user experience is terrible. So that that's what we were trying to solve with Homeroom. I, I didn't want to have to do that anymore. I knew that no one wanted to do that. And I thought we could probably figure out an option that would solve that problem. 
Yeah, and I, I remember back in my college days, yeah, like I had, you know, roommates for college and it was difficult because you have all different kinds of people, different living styles, different cleanliness, different um, sleeping hours and disarrangements. It gets tough. And, you know, back then mm -hmm. you can really choose in the first year. But after that, after going to your own space, finding roommates um, during college or even after college, it, it's pretty difficult. And yeah, Craigslist is not, probably not the best way because you don't really get to understand them. And I think in the, within the last, you know, few many years that, there's has been better applications um, platforms out there to help you identify and kind of match kind of like a, you know, like a match.com, for example, but for co-living and finding good roommates and finding people who have similar alignments, similar goals. One thing I do like about uh, co-living is that you really get to meet different kinds of people all over the world and live together and create different experiences. So that's, can be a lot of fun too. Imagine like a how like a hacker house where you have um, a bunch of engineers or a bunch of people who have similarities or even sports people who want to do certain things together. Mm -hmm. It just becomes way more fun. And another part I liked about it too, was that when you, you can actually afford to get a way bigger space and actually pay less because you're leveraging um, just the rental costs and then dividing it by X amount of people and paying the utilities, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a bunch of um, advantages to like living together if you can get over kind of the challenges, which is, you know, when you've worked at homeroom, you systematically to take on some of those challenges by doing roommate matching, uh, doing some co compatibilities, uh, machine learning stuff, as well as, you know, just having like some basic principles that everyone has to follow. And so that's those are both pretty important. But yeah, you save with homeroom. You save money. You're going to spend thirty percent less than the studio typically, um, and uh, yeah, I mean that's super valuable. And then you're going to have like people to hang out with like at night after get off work, which I think is is pretty cool. So when you guys created homeroom, like there's other platforms out there. Like how do you guys, how did you guys create and how do you differentiate yourself in terms of like you know creating a better user experience for people and for landlords and for the tenant side. Yeah, from the landlord side, we technology is one of the key ways that we do that from from the from the as a landlord and for um, our front. Sorry, for, I got they got the little mixer on. So the tenant from the the way we treat tenants is we you know we we're able to streamline most of their process by using technology. You can you can like view your room online, take a virtual tour, talk to one of our folks twenty four seven about the room. Um, then you can pay online after you apply online and you can be done, you know, within a, a couple hours of the, for the whole process, you don't have to drive anywhere. So that's a lot easier. You can pay, everything's payable online as well. Um, you get a, a key code. So it's pretty, it feels somewhat like kind of arriving to an Airbnb, um, which is pretty sleek. Um, and then we have like community events. We have like online yoga, like every Thursday, which is cool. Um, we have a lot, we used to have larger events before COVID happened. So there, there's just more engagement. Uh, it's a more seamless experience. Um, and that's that's how we focus there. Nice, and I think for the tenant side, like, you know, I'm a landlord myself and investor in uh, properties, mm -hmm. but what I see too from the tenant side perspective of co-living companies is that, yeah, for example, you get a great application, you get online, you get to use um, your technology to do uh, tenant matching. And at the same time, the experience that I see for the tenant side and what they tell me is that, you know, it's easy to find spaces faster. They can narrow down, search better. They don't have to deal with Craigslist and just that kind of search 
but you actually have like a platform search where you can really drill it down and say, hey, here's the exact neighborhoods that I want to be in. Here's the size I want to be in. Here's what amenities I want to be in um, and the price points. And then here's what's available right now. And just by seeing that really quickly, it makes it so much easier to have a better experience. Also with the mm -hmm. fact is, for example, like in normal situations, most landlords do not want to take photos, really professional photos, 3D tours, do the whole sh all these showings, and they don't want to do individual uh, rooms for liability reasons, right? So that's a little part of the different experience. And in the co-living space for the tenant side, um, if the place already comes fully furnished, then they're actually saving a lot of money on furniture as well. So they don't have to deal with moving costs, uh, furniture measurements, and then cleaning, and then taking it back out again, right? Yeah, they, they you, we we do ask tenants do furnish their bedrooms at home room, mm -hmm. um, but generally they don't. They're not going to bring, um, they're not going to bring their own coffee table. They're not going to bring their own kind of kitchen or or dining room items. That's that's all provided as part of like their rent. So that's a nice feature too, because if you actually account for that uh, in terms of savings and dollars, that if I'm going to stay there for a year and I don't need to furnish all this stuff, move in and move out, and that's a lot of valuable savings too that they can actually calculate into um, just an overall yearly cost, right? Yeah, you know, over time, over the if you're not going to move furniture, you save moving costs. If you're not going to buy furniture, you save money there. So. And you're spending 30% less every month. So in general, it's just a much cheaper way to live. And you can transfer from our for, at Homeroom, but in a lot of other different co-living companies, like at any time you can move kind of like to die. In our case, as our network grows, it'll become more powerful. But from now, for now, you can move from Kansas City to Austin and it's seamless, right? Your, your membership continues. Um, there's not there's not a bump in the road. It's you're already pre-approved. You're ready. You can just head on out. So pretty, pretty simple. And I think that ends up the flexibility and the affordability combined are pretty hard to beat. That is actually a nice feature too, because for example, I don't need to be stuck on a, a yearly lease agreement. I don't know if I'd like my roommates. I don't know if I like the place, if it's old, is making a lot of noises, it's cold, or it's not the right location I want to be in. I actually want to be a block away closer to the whatever, right? It, so they're kind of nice that you're not locked in. You can have that flexibility while you're actually saving money. Mm -hmm. yeah, that is no, an advantage. Yeah, it's really cool. really like it. Um, for myself, so yeah. <laughs> nice. Do you actually notice a lot of tenants utilizing the space now? More and more people joining in. Um, I, sorry. Yeah, we have um, we uh, we generally have a you know most people are using the common space pretty. We uh, we make sure that the common space is has a dining room table and a living room with a TV is included. So it's really built to kind of watch people engage. I'll be honest, I don't. Uh, we we don't have video cameras in the houses, so. How the common spaces are utilized uh, over time is not something I have a ton of uh, familiarity with. Yeah, uh, definitely. And then, you know, for example, um, how have you known your user base to grow? Like, um, I saw two right now. You're currently in how many cities? Uh, we're in four. You're in four cities right now. Cool. Mm -hmm. And then, how many states? Uh, two. Two three, states right three, now. Three states, yeah. Three states right now in four cities. Okay, how how is that working out right now? Like, what do you notice between the landlord side and the tenant side? Like, how's the growth going? And then, um, how are the tenants? Are they moving quite often, or are they stay, pretty staying there pretty uh, pretty frequently? Um, I would say like the you know the average stay is about thirteen months at home room. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't get a lot, we don't typically get a lot of transfers. It's kind of you know the hassle of moving is it's not it's not no one likes to do it even with the even though you can. 
Um, so some people transfer, but it's, I would say like only one in 10 of our tenants will transfer from one location to another one. Um, but yeah, the average, most people are signing up for about a year. Um, that's a pretty standard kind of agreement, member agreement people will sign. Uh, but yeah, we, we've had people that have been with us since the beginning of the company, pretty much, you know, almost the full time. So Nice. And then when they move, do they move to another um, homeroom co-living space or do they move uh, buy a home? What do they do? Um, yeah. So, so sometimes it's, it's a little bit of everything. Sometimes they'll buy a home. Um, sometimes they'll buy, move into an apartment. Um, you know, some of the times they'll, because they'll move out of, the, you know, sometimes they move in with their parents. It just, it really depends on their life stage. A, a, a lot, a, a decent amount of them are moving into a different city and they're going with it. They're, they're leaving the area is what a majority of people leave home room for and they're they're moving into an apartment in another city what's the um current trends that you see right now like you know especially with COVID going on uh, in the last 500 plus days like what have you seen in terms of like co-living spaces like how have people tenants uh been handling that um have they been moving out more often and getting their own personal space um we actually no we that's we didn't see that we actually had um, very little movement during COVID. We had like zero vacancy for a large majority of it. I think two people out of, at the time we had a, few, a bit over a hundred tenants, two of them asked to leave and they were able to leave their lease, but the, you know, the other hundred and something, they all stayed put. So. Nice. That's good to hear. Maybe, you know, for example, if they already been living with the, their, um, their, their roommates already, they're comfortable. They already understand everything else. Um, how about during the new users, new users during this time period have, um, new users been signing up more? Has it been dropping a little bit? Um, how's the like market rates for these spaces for them? Uh, market rates have been the same. Uh, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't put our prices down at all. Um, and we've had a pretty, I mean, like, we're growing substantially about 300% year over year, 350% year over year in terms nice. of tenant acquisition. So yeah, a lot of uh, still growing a lot. I, I don't, I don't know how much that would pick up if like the pandemic was over tomorrow um, necessarily. So it's a, but we have, we haven't really, we, cause we don't have like an alternate universe where it didn't exist, but for us, it doesn't seem to be slowing us down too much. Yeah, that's good. Good to hear that too. And I, I know right down the sales side, like in the Bay Area, the sales been picking up a lot. A lot of people in general just want to be moving from condos to single family houses with a nice big backyard, more open space. Um, you know, they want to just have that freedom and enjoy it. And that's been nice too, because the sales been going, you know, quite a bit up. Uh, during COVID time, the rents have been going down a little bit, but now that companies are starting to move back in, I noticed a trend in the real uh, rentals that has been picking up quite fast. Like even one I had a month ago, have like 70 requests in like one day who want to move into a space and they have roommates. Um, you know, it's pretty cool to see that people are coming back to the city. And then I'm, I'm sure for the co-living side of things, they're trying to figure out roommate situations, you know, and figure out uh, how to do that, especially with all these companies um, slowly opening back up. It's kind of nice to see the different changes. And I hopefully, you know, with Delta, everything going on that it gets better for everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were like, on, we were, it felt like we were like almost through it, like, and then it kind of like has kind of reemerged. But I think we're, seems like we're doing better this time dealing with that. <laughs> um, so that, that's good. So um, definitely um, causes, yeah, a lot of chain reactions throughout the market. The, yeah, for sure. 
You know, for you mentioned to you're in four different cities. Which cities did you guys choose, and like why those cities? Uh, we're in Kansas City, Austin, San Antonio, and Dallas, Fort Worth metro. Um, yeah, we're I technically we're in twenty three cities. We're just we're in four metros. Okay, four metros. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Austin. And Kansas City, I personally picked to invest in. So those were, you know, I thought they were both best in class for at the time when we started in 2018 for appreciation and for cash flow. Uh, I still think that actually about those two markets. So really like both of them. Uh, Dallas, we really like the size of it. We like the growth of the population income. Um, we thought there would be, a, you know, when we expanded there in September 2020, we thought there was going to be a pretty um, above average price appreciation opportunity um, for investors. And we saw, I guess we just saw a really good one. And it may have been like, just everyone saw a massive price appreciation. It seemed to hit every city almost, although Austin was a little bit stronger. So, and then San Antonio, same thing. We like the, we like the demographics. We like the net migration. We like the income. And so, you know, we're just sort of, we like Texas in general as an investment hub for our company it's texas is growing um the population is growing its economy is uh booming so it's just like a really great place to for us to start um and then we're going to start expanding outwards from there once we've kind of got uh, the the texas area uh, metros down nice actually i agree with you i actually do like kansas um austin dallas san antonio i think texas is been booming a lot lately and it's our it's always been but it's actually getting just better and better and i see like especially with you see tesla and other companies moving there and doing more business because it's just tax-friendly state um it's kind of nice to see how fast it's actually growing so if you take like the san francisco market which has already been up and texas has a lot more space but even within that space there's so much opportunity right now and even before to really grow and you see how the rental's been changing so quickly within hundreds of dollars it's been ramping up right even on the multi-unit space big buildings you see like the rents increasing by 100 300 just because you're adding more value more amenities and because the companies are coming in mm -hmm. it's kind of nice to see that rapid growth right now i think there's a lot i think there's still room for a lot more opportunity there some markets are some sub markets are actually getting really hot right now it's like wow that quickly you know getting yeah. expensive but even then expensive now versus expensive in 10 years from now i think mm -hmm. you still have a lot of room to uh find some good opportunities right yeah i i don't yeah, I don't think looking at past prices necessarily um, are a good way to make future decisions in real estate. I do think that um, it's really just about when you compare the average market to the market you are currently evaluating. Is it appreciating? Is is it appreciating because of you know, population is booming, or rent, or there's more demand from uh, landlords and investors, or is it because income is increased in the city? All three of those are pretty good things. So. I generally bet my money on a city that's appreciating above average going forward uh, versus kind of saying like, oh, it's already appreciated. So it's um, too high of a price. Okay. Uh, right now in Texas, what areas do you think are appreciating? What do you see within the next five years? What do you predict? Um, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, Austin will probably hold the course of staying above 5% appreciation. I, it's been about Austin's been about five, four or five or six percent above inflation um, in terms of property appreciation over the last, I think it's about 10 years. Um, even longer than that, if you take out the section of time um, during the Great Recession and just kind of uh, just cut that part out of the, the growth. So it's been growing 
uh, way above um, the rest of the United States for a long time, pretty linearly too. Like the price, if you look at the average property price in the metro over time, it just goes pretty straight up into the right with not a lot of deviation. I think Dallas a little bit more, it's such a big metro, there's so many different things moving, whereas Austin's kind of like a tight little pod um, that that's a little bit harder to predict, but it generally it generally is beaten inflation by 2%. Um, San Antonio's, I think, just coming into its own and starting, I think we'll probably beat inflation by 1%, 1 or 2%. So. Kind of nice that you see, you know, many, many different cities, but in general, like is beating inflation. That's a major point. Like we all want to beat inflation with invest real estate investing and have the tax benefits and diversification, stability, uh, residual income, right? So if you can beat it by 4%, 6%, that's really good. And if you can go further, even better, you know, it's kind of mm -hmm. nice to see that. But like, yeah, I think, you know, even now in 2021, you know, how things are dynamically changing throughout, um, yeah, really think focusing on the numbers, the, the the data, and trying to figure out what's the smartest moves and which ones has the, how do you reduce your risk and at the same time really grow it and take that into account. Um, so in for example in Austin, if you're growing four to six percent, and you guys you guys are looking for single family homes, um, generally, how many bedrooms are you finding and what are you doing with the house? Are you adding more bedrooms to the house? Like how are you creating the user experience um, to create higher rental revenue for landlords and, and yourself? Yeah, I mean, we, um, it depends on the property. Each, each property is different um, and how we address them or color. I mean, some houses are actually ready to go pretty much by default. You know, it's a five bedroom, three bath. Um, price is good and that could work right out of the shoe with no. But one of the things we do for all properties is we ask the owner to furnish the common areas and set up a smart technology package um, as well as kitchen essentials. Because when people are rotating in and out, those things get really difficult to keep the, the user experience can be really um, up uneven if that stuff's not like part of the house for co-living. You don't want people like bringing a couch and then leaving and taking their couch and then no one has a couch. Right. So controlling that is pretty important from, for a co-living standpoint. So it's, we tell investors it's worth that investment. It increases experience. It'll increase the, how long they stay there um, and how much they enjoy their stay. So the other thing we'll do is we will occasionally add bedrooms. It depends on the, the, the property. We'll add, you know, between one, two, three, four, even sometimes it really, really depends on the, the space. It really depends on, um, you know, what makes sense. We're all, we're very cognizant of egress windows, making sure people can get out in the fire, uh, making sure that we're, you know, being pretty affordable in what we're doing, very light um, kind of build outs, you know, sometimes they'll cost, you know, $10,000, um, sometimes a little more. So. Yeah, that makes sense too. And then one thing you mentioned, and there's different co-living space companies and each company does things a little bit differently. Uh, one thing you mentioned for, for your company is that you asked the landlords to furnish the common areas, right? And then the tenants furnish their own rooms. Correct. Yeah. Well, how do you work with a landlord on that part too? Because you know how landlords, they all have different styles. They might not even match the style that tenants generally want. Do you help provide like a platform where they can do select all the items themselves or how do you help? No, them we, we manage that on behalf of the landlords typically. Okay. So we, we just, we have our own interior designers. Um, we have our own kind of like technicians. We'll allow, we'll allow investors to do it. We've had a couple do it themselves, but generally like they're probably going to end up spending as much time as, as money as we spend because we have discounted rates through all of our vendors and all that stuff. So 
we don't we don't really care how it's done as long as it's done well. But we do say we do tell folks that you can do it yourself, but you'll probably pay more, and then you'll have to do a lot of work. So it doesn't usually make sense. Right. So, so for example, if you're a landlord and you're looking to do this, um, for example, you guys come in, you take a look at the property, see what needs to be fixed, see what how you would um, design it, and then you can give a list to the owner. Here's all the things we recommend buying, and then the owner would pay for all the furniture in, in this space. Um, do they work directly through you guys as the um, as a, with the vendors, so they don't have to manage everything, or do they have to be pretty active in this process? Yeah, um, it, they generally just write us a check for for like five thousand dollars, and we do all of it for them, and we and that includes the items. And if you're a designer, to do the design and get the furniture, install it, install the smart home technology. Um, so yeah, I mean it's um, it's uh, it's that's usually the way it goes, but. We also have a guide, so if you want to do it by yourself, and we, so we'll manage all the vendor relationships for the investor. But if you'd like to do it yourself, you can um, kind of do it however you want. Through so we've had people drop ship from Amazon and and then go personally and unbox stuff. So nice, yeah. For me personally, I'd rather have you guys do it and take care of it because you guys probably have done it way more often. You have the experience; you already have probably measured everything out, and your designers can just put everything together, package it, and get it done. So investors really want to save time. They want to focus on, you know, just investing, doing their specialty, right? While you guys do your specialty there. So it's nice that you guys offer that too, because some companies might not offer all the services. Some offer a little bit differently. Like one in the Bay Area, one company, what they do differently is that, you know, they basically, they, they take a master lease on, as a co-living space, they take the master lease onto the property. And from there, they have their designers, their photographers, their stagers, uh, and even the people come in to like fully furnish the space for non-living room, uh, but non-common area space. And they also furnish the kitchen with all of their items from the company itself. Um, they budget that into the cost um, into their own master lease. And then from there, they you know sublease the each room out on their time period, right? And let them handle everything. So as an investor owner, it makes it easier. I have one master lease, they take on the responsibility, they do everything. Even some offers say, hey, in terms of fixing up, if I need to add additional bedrooms or uh, fake walls with permits, then they'll figure that out. If permits not needed, they do it that way too. But they try to design the space to maximize the rents. Some other companies, they'll say, hey, I'll just do like a 70-30 split, 80-20 split, whatever splits. You pay for this, I pay for that, and we go together. But then the mm -hmm. risk is also on the owner on that sense because there's no fixed rate exactly. You're taking a percentage share. So that's a little mm -hmm. tougher too. Um, and then there's you know different other probably other different kinds of waterfall effects, right? So yeah. for you guys, are you yeah. guys how do you do that with the landlord? Like what's your style with the landlord? Um, yeah, we don't we're not gonna help the landlord buy anything. Um the and do any work to their property it's their property so we'll we'll help them do that work if they want to pay for it um but we're not yeah um we have two options you can get a guaranteed rent model um which is about a 70 30 split and then you can do a revenue share we do an 85 15. Okay. so that's that's pretty much those are the two options we have for investors and then some points of that from an investor standpoint too sometimes i think about okay well what's the you know, how do we help it win-win for each other, right? One is timing and another is, you know, pricing. How do we create the highest price in the quickest amount of time? It's always not that easy. And then at some point too, do they lower the rents to get a quick person in quicker just to cover, you know, cover cost? So it gets a little challenging. And how do you, how do you find that balance, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, 
that's a pretty similar problem across all real estate, all, all leasing is like, when do you lower the price? When do you, yeah. And so, yeah, we're, we have a pretty advanced leasing team. Most of them come from like the A-class apartment rental industry. They understand pricing and selling and all that. So I think we're, we're pretty good at that, but it is a little bit of a, there's less comps in the co-living space, especially the cities we're in. There are no comps except for our own own properties. So. Cool. Let's actually take some questions into one of our um, one of our listeners is actually asking, how do you screen for risk? Oh, Aaron, Ta. that's cool. Um, <laughs> I didn't know we were live. That's yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, how do we screen for risk? Uh, yeah. That's a pretty the question is broad, so I'll take it as broadly as I can. And then and also I'll talk about a few. Um, when you screen tenants, uh, you, you know, use TransUnion Smart Move. It's the industry standard. They've got the best database in the U.S. for making sure eviction, criminal, and credit scores are correct. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that would be, you know, the big one, just screen your tenants. And then we, we do a video interview with most tenants or a phone screen. We generally like to do video. And then our tenants will actually do a call with the future roommate and do make sure it's a good fit. And sometimes they'll say it doesn't feel like a good fit. And then we'll say, okay, well, and then we'll maybe relocate that person. So that, I mean, that's the biggest um, thing we do. Um, the lease itself, the member agreement is pretty, um, it's pretty clear that you're moving into a co-living house and that there will be more risk in this situation than if you live in an apartment by yourself um, and that you're waiving most of your liability um, that would come from a situation like that. Um, so, you know, in our, Kind of according to like our lawyers that protects us that protects the um the ten the, the owners of the property um, and we have a general liability policy and obviously we recommend you know umbrella policy and all that normal stuff or analysis so the, the just the standard stuff works in our kind of our agreements and um our screening process really has been the biggest thing that's helped it to continue to work Cool. And, you know, based on my experience in real estate, um, what I see just, for example, in real estate leasing in California, you know, generally, for example, you would say, hey, like credit reports, background checks, eviction checks, you would look at their pay bank statements, their pay stubs, you know, make sure they're qualified, they can pay, uh, you screen them that way. In the co-living space, they would actually add on, like some companies in the Bay Area, they would add on, you know, like um, Facebook and other social tool searching algorithms look at that and also have the for example the first person who gets the house first goes there and then you know they screen them as best they could with video conferencing meeting them showing them the place they like it but then that person actually gets the ability to screen the next tenant roommate that comes in to see if they're a good fit and then it goes so on to two to go to three to four to five people to really find a good fit so that's kind of nice that they could screen themselves too so you know that hey you're the first one in the house but you're going to meet some other people see if they're fit if they're not fit we'll we'll play matching game and try to find the best fit for all of you guys, because we really want to create a good roommate situation for everyone to stay longer. So that's nice on that part in the just general leasing side, you know, you don't, even if someone comes in acting all good, has everything good, you just, you don't know, but you try your best to really find out and just get to know the person to see if they're the right fit mm -hmm. um, financially. And just, you know, as a person, if they're good. Um, yeah, so that's I mean, part we, of the risk factors that people see. Right? Yeah, I mean, we, we were able to mitigate those risks too, even if they move in and they're kind of a bad actor. We have roommates that are good actors. You know, we hit really high percentage. So we'll have two or three roommates who say, hey, this person's a problem. And so then we'll get, you know, ask them to leave before anything happens, right? Before there's any damage to the property. So in a way, I think, you know, people uh, intuitively would 
it looks like COVID would be more destructive or cause more maintenance issues. But we've actually seen the opposite where because we have such a <clears throat> consistent high quality of people living with us and we have accountability between separate roommates and we kind of have a maid service and uh, yard care layered in, we're able to actually keep maintenance costs lower than average, which is pretty interesting and not necessarily what I expected going into it. Nice, because yeah, you just add you just added one part of it where when you have different roommates from different like subleases that they actually have accountability to each other because they're living in the same space. So the damages incurred into the building itself, right, would cause each person to be more accountable to each other. Exactly. Yeah, you can't really like jack up your living room if um, if your roommate's <laughs> watching TV, right? It's just not, yeah, they're not going to be super happy about that. That's true. And let's go to the next question about that too. Like, um, how do you prevent a co-living from becoming a tenant lease? For example, let's say San Francisco Bay Area, you know how San Francisco has high um, tenant protection laws and things like that, right? There's actually some rules against co-living spaces in the Bay Area, um, in even San Francisco. But like in Texas, do they have any issues between a co-living and becoming a real tenant? Uh, sorry, I don't, I don't necessarily understand that question. Okay, so for example, uh, Let's say this in San Francisco, right? If you did an Airbnb and you know you have short-term leases, but there's two different rules here, and of course they can speak to lawyers about it. But for example, if you're staying over 30 days in a space that you could potentially become a a, ten, a full tenant, you know, in tenant in place, rather than a, a like a, a you know a guest, right? So rather than a person living there as a co-living. Is there a way for them to become, I don't think Texas has any um, similar laws of, regarding tenancies where they can actually take over and become protected tenants in Texas is different from the California. I would argue that anywhere, all people that live in a co-living space are tenants and protected by tenant law. So there is no, you don't prevent it. They are, that's, they are tenants. So, are they uh, subtenant to you? Uh, for example, yeah. for you guys, they're subtenant to your your leasing, right? Yeah, correct. Yep. So then, if you if you choose to end the lease, you're ending their tenancy as well. Correct. Yep. So th that that difference would be this: in San Francisco Bay Area, let's say they found a loophole where even though they were a subtenant to you, they got a loophole where they became a subtenant to the they became an actual tenant to the owner. So that would you know change the rules. So that's where we talk about like uh, with lawyers, you talk about protection and how to mitigate that risk and how to do it properly. And depending on your municipal palality, how that works, right? Um, so that's where the tricky part comes, and that's why some certain out of state areas more landlord friendly becomes a lot more easier for investors' appetite to really handle that. Um, in San Francisco, it gets a lot tougher because you have Airbnb rules, you have co living rules, you have. Um, business rules you have so many different things to kind of look at so the strategy gets a lot harder okay but yeah that's a good question aaron thanks for bringing that up and just it really depends on where you're living in which state and city and talking to your real estate lawyer specifically on how to make your leasing protect your landlords and you know everyone out there cool so let's jump back on the topic here um so what do you see as benefits more benefits for investors to do this single family housing co-living versus a different style, Airbnb style, short-term living versus just buying and doing normal normal uh, leasing. Are the numbers better Is it become, because it becomes more passive rather than active? How does that work? 
Um, yeah, we, I think when I look at those three categories, short-term rental, co-living, and uh, longer-term rental, it's you have advantages to each of those. Um, short-term rental is going to probably be the highest revenue number, but it's also going to be the most effort and the most um, uh, volatility. So that that can be, you know, so it's not like a, it's you, if you get if you plug in someone like Bocasa and you have a really prime location. You, it can work out pretty good, but you know they charge thirty six percent, which is pretty pretty aggressive. So um, short term rentals is um, so highest revenue, but I would say it's probably the most volatile of all the models. I think co living is probably the least is actually the least volatile, um, in the sense that if you have four roommates and one moves out, you still get seventy five percent of the rent. So with with um, with home room, you end up we have we don't have any zero dollar months for our owners since they launched their in the history of our company since they've launched their homes. So very stable income. Uh, turns can be as short as two days where someone leaves and then two days later, somebody else can move in. Um, so it allows for the vacancy to be a lot less painful um, across the board. And then we're probably the second most revenue. So we increase rent in a lot of in houses by 75%. We have a property that we took over as renting for 1500. We got the rent up to 2,700. So rent's massively higher. I think probably with short-term rental on the same property, maybe you get 3,200, but it's just a lot more work. Um, you know, standard rentals, um, there's, you know, it's probably the middle stability, lowest income. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with regular rentals. They're the most, they're, they're the most liquid. Um, they're the least, they're a lot less effort than I think either of the other two. So I don't think there's anything wrong with any of the models. I do think co-living gives you the best mix in terms of effort, income, and stability. Okay. And then I would say this too, for example, um, since I've you know, done, done quite a bit of different things and so have our clients, I would say that, yeah, standard rentals and depending on location, you can get stability, but you, you also have to think about being more active versus passive. If you're you know dealing with property managers, not all property managers want to deal with single family homes, depending on the rental price points and their, their payout for themselves. So it gets a little tricky. As an active investor, do you really want to be active managing tenants, managing all the issues, toilets, washing machines, and, you know, the building itself it, that gets, you know, you have to factor that cost in of your time, right? Um, when you start doing Airbnb, then I start looking at location. Is your house primarily in a good location where it's actually Airbnb friendly, a great location? And what's the dollar per night? And what's the vacancy factor? Is it 50%, 45, 30, mm -hmm. depending on where you're located? If you're buying a house specifically near like Hawaii, for example, or even near like all the you know, hiking trails and amenities, then that percentage probably go back up your lower vacancy because people want to utilize it. If it's a, a house that can be used all year round, like Tahoe houses, then that can go, that numbers goes up or even other states, like what's, what, where are they you're buying? Right. And then in terms of co-living too, co-living, I think for me, like I see some good co-living spaces where you're near really major tech companies or you're near major schools that want to use utilize a nice space don't want to be in a dorm you know then people will pay more for that and even if they pay more you're actually paying cheaper per room versus paying individual for a whole house so there's you know three different factors that way and it really comes down to that as an investor it comes down to what am i comfortable with what do, what do i understand what am i willing to take a risk and how active do i really want to be for that percentage of you know value um, co-living Airbnb can be nice if you have different turnkey properties, but like you mentioned too, some of those companies take a lot of your percentage. So 
even factoring that in, which is better for yourself, right? And what's the general laws for that city, for that state anyways, with regards to tenancies and leasing and liability, right? Mm -hmm. So for even for homeroom, like how does the insurance policy work? Like um, do each tenant get, uh, gets their own rental insurance? Does homeroom have uh, insurance on top of that? And then the landlord you mentioned earlier has to have their own insurance plus umbrella policies. Yeah, we require all tenants to have rentals insurance, renters insurance. We actually follow up every month about that and they get fined if they don't have it. Um, and then we have a general liability policy that's um, been reviewed by our lawyers. It's pretty strong um, in between us and the tenant and then it shields the owner as well. And then owners obviously are going to have their landlord policy. Um, we recommend having an umbrella policy or an LLC kind of for additional protection with with any property, we, we actually think the liability with co-living is lower just because of the additional shield that we provide with the policy and um, with the lease that we have, that's a lot more, um, I think, aggressive in terms of limiting liability. Nice, I think one thing comes to mind, I should ask my ask my insurance agent, if, I, if you have a, a property and you have like landlord protective policy with umbrella, does it actually cover co-living as well as option? Because normally it covers leasing, general leasing, but does it cover Airbnb? Does it cover co-living situations? No, uh, there's insurance doesn't differentiate between co-living and um, and standard rentals. They do long-term and short-term, but co-living isn't a definite, isn't definable. Okay. It doesn't exist. And our yeah. you know co-living tenants are typically long-term, so yeah. anything over six months would usually be defined by most laws of a long-term tenant, and that's that's what our tenants are. Okay, good. That's a good thing, you know, for them to check. But yeah, like you mentioned, like they are usually long-term uh, living spaces, so that would classify that route. Okay, and then um, so for example, even even in your cities that you're currently active in, are there other co-living companies out there? And then how like how does a, a, a tenant choose which one to go with? Um, yes, there are other co-living companies out there. There's Pad Split based out of Atlanta. Um, June Homes is out of New York. Bungalows out of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, so, Star yeah, City. I, what's that? Yes, yeah, City. Sorry. Star City. That's another company. Oh yeah, I was talking about the single-family home co-living okay. companies. Star, yeah. Star City is like a massive building, multifamily. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, there's other. If you're looking at those, there's there's um, Common as well in New York. For mm -hmm. multi max large buildings, Star City is actually no longer a company, though it actually got acquired by Common about six weeks ago. Okay. So um, yeah, so um, yeah, there's a lot of different options. I, you know, it really depends on which market you're the most interested in investing in. Um, we were the first co-living company to help investors buy properties. I I think we understand it the deepest. So I think um, Bungalow recently added that as something that they'll do, but a lot of it's in very expensive markets. So we, you know, I'm not sure how that's working for them, but they're giving it a go. Um, we'll see. Um, yeah. So there's not really there's not really choice because there's not a lot of markets that have more than one co-living company. Pretty much so far, all co-living companies have been exclusively in their own markets without them kind of crossing in a, in a market. I, I guess it's for a while, Hub House and Bungalow were kind of in the same markets, but Hub House didn't make it. So now everyone's kind of in their own spot. Okay. Like, that brings me to another point too, I was talking about earlier. Um, for example, what happens if you guys are you know, dealing with landlords and then and tenants, and then a company 
um, a co-living company shuts down? What happens in that kind of situation? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the investor still owns the property. A lot of times um, the investor is going to have bought a property that's in a nicer area because of co-living. So they'll still be in a pretty good situation. As the longer the holding period, obviously, the longer, the better. Um, but in terms of reverting a co-living house to like a, what it was before, it doesn't cost very much. Usually you'd be removing a few walls. And then you have a nice staged home with like Matterports all ready to go. So you can just turn into a standard rental at that point or you could sell it. So it's not as much of a, it's not as much as of a negative as I think is uh, people would would be be concerned about. So Yeah, because I was think, talking to some companies in the Bay Area and I think like one of them was like on the verge of shutting down. So it's like, okay, well, if you're, you had a master lease, for example, and you shut down, how does the tenants, you know, continue on? Do they take it? Do they sign a new lease with the owner directly, or else do they all leave? Because then you can get to some liability issues there too, because they've been living there, but they haven't been paying directly. They've been paying to the co-living company, which is now shut down. For example, then you know what happens to that that void? Are they they can just stay there? You know, so it gets kind of tricky in that situation. If if a company closed down, when bank when bankrupt or something. Yeah, no doubt. It's not, it's not the, it's not ideal. Obviously, if you invest in a clothing house, you're, you're hoping that the company will stay in business. Yeah, so you kind of have to look at the financials too. That as an investor, my next thing would be looking at the financials of the company. How how viable are they in the future of five, ten years from now? And like, are they really profitable? And like, what's their target goals to see how sustainable they are? I know some people are buying into just getting more houses quickly to grow versus becoming more profitable to maintaining, you know, continue the momentum of the company. Yeah, I don't, what's that? It's a little tricky there too when you look at it that way. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Um, I think it's definitely worth evaluating. I don't think that um, the players that made it through COVID, I feel like, are all pretty solid, to be honest. So I don't think yeah. it's a it's a concern. Some of the companies got knocked out by COVID were a little bit less robust, but yeah, the the, one, the, the players that I mentioned, I think, are all I would probably pretty strong. Agree pretty confident and yeah yeah it looks like they have a good platform they have a lot of uh people working there and have you know trying to build their vision so it's kind of cool to see how these companies are growing and even for you guys too like how do you quickly go from a startup and build a successful real estate company like what does it take to really get off the ground and get growing and to be able to go to 23 different cities like how do you scale that model even when you first started by you know for example by yourself um it's a big yeah, I mean, you just you just do a piece at a time, um, just like anything else, where you you make sure you fine tune it for uh, one house, and then you try to do it with five, and then you try to do it with ten. And if you feel really strong in like your core processes and you understand the core pieces that go into it, you can maybe jump into a different market altogether. Um, yeah, I, I'm generally, you know, I think that having more markets that you're working in is actually better than less if you can handle the um, the neural load of just like keeping tabs on all of them that can be you know as a passive investor it's a little harder but i think as like a company that's working in real estate we love to be in every market because then investors can have like a you know they can pick what they like do they like high cash flow no no appreciation forecast or what do they want do they want to mix and match those so yeah that's kind of that's really just it's just piece at a time and getting you know a little bit better every day keep continuing like push way harder than you feel comfortable doing. 
And I think the scalability is hard to, in general, but even for your company, for example, as co-living company, you're dealing with multiple things like financials, income expenses, uh, tracking, reporting for your investors. You have the tenant side, you have the software development side to create the user experience for everyone. And then on top of that too, you're, you're dealing with third-party third vendors in terms of furniture, um, getting everything designed, getting everything inputted, and then dealing with the customer experience for the investor too, mm -hmm. all the payouts and making sure the construction timing, everything's on point, mm -hmm. getting the tenant leasing, getting a leasing division in place to get the tenants in quickly while vetting them. So you're adding, you have so many layers on it, but in general, co-living has that many layers, but in a company wise, this is the scale, you have to have a lot of resources, a lot of manpower to grow it and the platform helps accelerate it to make it smoother as you keep growing. And, as you add more cities, you can add more different dynamics about like uh, you mentioned earlier, like, you know, community events, weekly community events, but now you're timesing it by 23 different cities. It gets mm -hmm. tough in coordination, but using your platform to do that and the application. So multiple layers in different sectors to mm -hmm. really create the experience for everyone to be, you know, really great. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot of pieces. We actually, I, one, of the, one thing that a VC told me like a year ago, and we were we weren't actually raising, we just occasionally like, have a conversation with a VC like once a quarter just to see like, hey, is this cool? Like, do people like this in the VC world or not? <clears throat> and I actually have actually a call right after this with the VC. But um, he um, he said, I don't think a small startup company can do all the pieces that you're trying to do, which is like exactly what you said, marketing. <laughs> it's like software development, real estate investor kind of content and platform, tenant acquisition and like a, an kind of a kind of a funnel that's not really, it's mostly a gorilla type sourcing funnel and then mm -hmm. kind of keeping all the ops together across cities. Yeah. Like, I, I think that's too much for a company. And it's like, all right, man, I'll see you, in, you know, I'll talk to you in a year. Um, yeah. But yeah, we, we pulled it off. We have some very talented team members um, and um, we grew quarter over quarter. We had our acquisition grew 300, we grew 300, we added 300% more properties this quarter than we did last quarter. So nice. seems to be, it seems to be working. Um, and uh, but yeah, it's, I'm definitely tired. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but we're good, we're, we're making, we're making headway or making a lot of traction. Yeah, right now, if you're not tired in 2021, then something's wrong. Like all of us should be really tired because there's so much craziness going on. There's so many things you're dealing with, sale, like your business, dealing with family, dealing with the economy, you're dealing with health concerns for a family. It gets tough to deal with all this stuff and with everything going on, sales and leasing has been crazy in, in multiple markets, right? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you're building your, your company at the same exact time. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's uh... like... You know, like yes. steam's coming out of all of our ears and everything because it's just <laughs> a lot of work to do. And, you know, if you're putting your head down, doing all the work right now, you're going to come out far ahead than people who just kind of give up. It's like, this is the best fight ever. If you can make it through this right now, you'll make it through many things in the future. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, definitely. I hope, uh, yeah. We definitely, definitely 2020 was, was pretty interesting uh, in the co-living space. So, yeah, that's why I, that's why I felt pretty good about, um, the competitive landscape because people, the companies that made it through or got stronger during COVID, I think, you know, Actually, I think it helps focus. It helps keep you focused in terms of like, for example, for me, I've always been a, mo a mobile first guy and 
always like, you know, work from anywhere is the most important thing to me rather than working at an office. And the reason I say that is really because of time management and focus. So you're not being distracted by driving back and forth, office collaboration, everything is great. But at the same time, just being able to focus and have high impact in a small amount of time versus, you know, getting distracted by many different notifications. Um, and then even in 2020, 2021, people realized that and started seeing more higher productivity for the people who are actually producing and, ex and executing. So then what changes is the landscaping of where you see these tech, tech companies accelerating faster during this period, while other companies who are behind just started collapsing down because they were too dependent on one model versus the other model and just the functionality of business, you know? So it's becoming more global versus local as well because now you can you know have all this collaboration globally uh so much easier people are more they have to be in tune and adapt to it now versus before ah, i can just go to office and just do this and that's right i don't need to be at, at a global forefront yeah no i agreed i think um i would definitely say it helped me help me focus personally i think it helped our company focus there's not much else to do <laughs> like than just kind of like work and try to work through stuff and um everything got a little quieter globally. Like it was obviously like um, politics were a little crazy, but um, otherwise there wasn't a lot going on, you know? So um, it was an interesting period, but like, it was honestly like we were able to do a lot of things that um, while the world was standing still, that kind of put us where we are today. So I would say it net positive for our company, not net positive for the world, obviously. Yeah. So we would probably, you know, trade the positive we would definitely not probably <laughs> definitely trade the positives for our company to undo it for the world but yeah uh, from a company standpoint we got stronger we got grittier we continued to grow um and um you know the competitors actually a lot of our competitors got hurt and we were actually still kind of moving forward and continuing to get stronger so in a lot of ways it was like a defining period for us and I think one thing you see with that too is like the companies who expanded heavily into office spaces got hurt the most because that amount of spend is crazy. And while you're spending that much money to have a nice luxury office or just a, a location that by saving in certain aspects, you know, and seeing actually what's actually needed versus what's not needed. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, some companies cut off, cut off the leases as quickly as they could. Some had to keep it and then they got stuck, but then they're eating that bill consistently. But the people who and companies who were able to move quickly and adjust quickly and you know focus on just creating a creating a global team as well benefited from this past you know year and a half. Mm -hmm. No, I, yeah, you know, I agree. I think uh, remote was if you had remote capabilities before the pandemic hit it, it, like in our case, we were fully we were already remote, or and it pushed us way more remote. So it, yeah, I think that's. It's also a good time if you haven't decided if you're going to be remote or in one place where we went from being like, we're not sure in, in March of 2020 to being like, we're now fully global. Our VP of operations is in Canada. Our director of sales is in Canada. We have a, you know, our director of construction is in Wisconsin. Our customer manager of customer success is in Mexico. Um, we have teams in Venezuela and the Philippines. So we went like, I'm just being like, are we going to be local to like now we're ultra global and it's yeah. made us like way better. I love so, that too, because yeah. now the, 
you have time with you too because you have a global team you can have 24 7 services and that's so much easier and you have a global team with different diversity different dynamics understanding of you know living spaces and values and how to help people right so mm -hmm. i kind of like that global mentality too because i was always been a global front first person and think about like why does everything need to be local when it actually can be global you can find so many resources so many different people around the world who are really good and create different dynamics in your team culture and just a value proposition right it's kind of nice to see that and then yeah the companies who adjusted to that quickly got the benefit of that too they're like okay i can actually do this in a global scale yeah, no, it's it's been um, it's been uh, it's been great. I, I've loved it, and it it allows you to kind of like choose price points differently and like trade offs. Um, yeah, it's it's super cool. And I know I actually I know the company's been doing this for decades, but it's just never been like the norm. So yeah, it's, it's pretty. It's actually, and the technology is kind of like catering more and more towards um, virtual as well. So it's a good time to go virtual. It's a good time to go virtual for sure. <laughs> Exactly. So that's kind of cool to see. But before we wrap up the show, I actually want to ask one more question too. Like mm -hmm. for our listeners out there, like how, what would you tell them now in terms of getting started in a couple of things, getting started in real estate investing and getting started in co-living as, as an option? How do they learn more about co-living? How do they learn more about investing uh, with you guys out of state and just getting to the mentality of thinking about pa active passive income in real estate? Um, yeah, I think, um, what I tell folks sort of, you know, doing out of state investing, maybe it's, they're still getting comfortable is that obviously picking a great partner is super important. Someone that you trust substantially, like they're really thinking in your best interest, not just trying to sell you on something. But if you have that, I think it's it's 100% a good idea to do it. It'll expand your real estate horizons. Um, the old kind of if I can't drive to it, I should. I'm not going to invest in it. Like mantra is is long dead, <laughs> and so I highly recommend people. You know, and why would you want to drive to your property even if it was local? Is what my question would be to them. Is like why why are you <laughs> driving to your property? Um, and so you know, you find a good partner. You can invest nationwide now. So then pick a great market and go with that. And I, I think it's good to layer on models that give you advantages. I think short-term rentals is an interesting model. I think co-living is in my, in my opinion, the best combo of fusion of what short-term rentals will do for you and what long-term rentals. But yeah, I mean, I, there's obviously drawbacks to all these innovative models that kind of push the envelope, but um, you know, if you do your research and you make sure that you have, you understand the risk and you understand the extra kind of layers, you know, we are seeing, we had some people that there are, their ROI was in the like 70s percentage wise last year. <laughs> nice. So um, the upside can be pretty, pretty incredible. And so like, it's what I would tell, it's what I would tell my dad to invest in is like do co-living, you know? Um, I, you know, but I would, but if that's too zany, then that's fine. Um, I would say then buy something out of state. Uh, regardless, because in real estate investing is a pretty powerful asset class, and you should um, definitely get used to um, doing that because it's going to help you long term. Yeah, I think uh, you made some great points. I would say, for example, you know, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. That's what many people say. Like you have to really get used to that and like really, you know, educating yourself on all the different platforms, all the different podcasts, all the different people speaking about different styles of investing, really taking account like which way do you, we know for a fact that 
investing in real estate is one of the best ways, period, right? There's so many benefits. So take that first. The next step is really thinking about what space do you want to be in? Active, passive, or semi-active? Dealing with, you know, local houses or out of state? Finding the right team? That takes a lot of work. It's like dating. Go talk to everyone you can talk to in every different state. Um, Ask all your people you know who are investing, who are they working with and why are they working with them? Maybe partner with them. Maybe partner with the person they're working with. And then think about what do you want to do? You want to do normal long-term housing? You want to do Airbnb? You want to do uh, co-living? Try it out. Figure it out and pick one and start focusing on it, like hyper-focusing on that and learning from it. And then adding layers, like you mentioned, adding Airbnb afterwards, adding co-living, adding multi-units and start diversifying your portfolio in different locales as well. So that way you can create a recession bubble by putting yourself in different locations so in case one goes down you're you're okay right you're stabilized throughout that's kind of how i see things i love multi-units i love investing i love airbnb model i think co-living is really interesting too i think there's some really good points about it i've seen the numbers do really well on those with certain companies and really you know taking it that with the diversification you can really have a good output but the worst case is you do nothing that's even worse you know you let inflation <laughs> beat you that's worse yeah that was a that was a nice uh, that was very cool I, yeah no I, I definitely agree with i think it's yeah that's that's how we think about it too i think you may have said it better than we do but it's like let's start with the beginning that real estate's gonna beat everything else and then if you want to talk about that let's talk about that first so we can be on the same page there um because we do you know we do get a lot of early stage investors who are like well i want to do the stock market it's like your irr on like a single family house is like going to be 17 percent right like there's no you're, you're not going to be and that's stable right it's not going up and down it's like just steady as she goes and like the stock market may give you 17 percent one year two years but average going to be nine percent right so yeah. it's, a, it's the best asset class and it's you have great leverage opportunities with conventional loans which are amazing and then on top of that um you know the the appreciation and the mortgage pay down compound kind of your return so yeah, it's a killer asset class. Um, and so I think that's something that all people in real estate can agree on. And it's it's just, uh, it can be, I think it's a little more scary. And so it's all, I'm always like, you know, let's make the decision that'll make you the most well off in 30 years, which is try to do something today. Because in 10 years, you're gonna have a lot more education if you keep moving and buying now. And then maybe your killer deal is gonna be in year 10. And then you're gonna start building out something that's gonna make you millions from that. But, you know, your first deal is never it. We could try to get the best possible deal, but my home run deals have kind of been sprinkled in. It's not like I get a home run every time. It's like I just keep buying just like the just like the stock market. Just keep it's always a good time to keep continue to buy. And then some of the time you'll just get massive home runs, but you're not going to be able to really control that. It's within reason. So I I completely agree. Yeah, you got to take the single hitters to get the home run. Otherwise, you're never going to get there anyways. You know, yeah, totally. Perfect. So how do people reach out to you, Johnny? Yeah. Johnny at livehomeroom.com is my email. Happy to, you know, res, you know, respond at any time. Um, if someone has questions about co-living, we, we've heard all of them. <laughs> so everyone asks us you know, what happens if the company goes out of business. That's like question number one. We answer that every day. Like 10 times. So, you know, but there's also more nuanced questions about co-living that we're happy to kind of um, go through and, strategies for keeping houses having a good culture and resetting the house culture and increasing rent how you do that and there's a lot of like nuance to co-living that like airbnb there's like millions of people doing it and there's like forums and everyone's talking to each other 
with co-living, it's sort of like, it's not, it's not really, it hasn't reached the mainstream yet though. I do think it will, like the platforms that are being out today will become the Airbnb in five to 10 years. So, but for now it's just like, you just reach out to whoever you can think of. And if you need help, I'm happy to help you out with that. Cool. Thank you so much, Johnny, for being on our show today. I actually learned a lot about co-living and I hope everyone out there learned a lot about it and you know, reach out to Johnny if you have questions. For everyone out there, be sure to check out our podcast, The Truth About Real Estate, and we'll see you guys in the next one.